Welcome to the Idle Book Club for July 2017. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Sarah Argadale. On this episode, we're discussing Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson. And on the next episode, we're going to be discussing N.W. by Zadie Smith. And that is going to release in September rather than August because we have a number of commitments and various travel this month, and it's going to be tough to get the book club out on time. So you'll have a little bit more time to get through N.W. by Zadie Smith. But first, this month, Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson, who passed away earlier this year, right? Pretty recently. Correct. A yeah. few months ago at the, the time of our recording. Neither of us had read anything by Dennis Johnson before. This was a first. And this book is a short story collection uh, concerned largely with drug addiction, alcoholism. Seems, As far as I'm aware, much of it is drawn from the author's own life experiences and the experiences of people he knew um, what did you make of this book? I thought this book was fantastic. I'm not surprised to have that opinion. We picked it because Dennis Johnson passed away and neither of us had read anything by by him. And I think this book is pretty widely considered to be his best piece of writing. I think it's a competition between this book and Tree of Smoke. Hmm. And Tree of Smoke is very, very long, and this book is very <laughs> short. So nice. uh, Jesus' son won out. Um, but ba- based on the praise that I had heard previously for this book, I was expecting to enjoy it, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, so did I. Uh, it did, I, I guess I didn't really know what to expect. And it neither sound, did I. Yeah, neither, <laughs> I expected it to be good, but I didn't really know what the subject matter was going to be, honestly, before I started yeah, nor reading I. it. Uh, I thought it was incredibly powerful. Um, I know that you said you didn't... It took you a while to pick up on the fact that the stories are all being told by one narrator and that they all exist in a continuity, although obviously a nonlinear and fractured one. Um, did, I mean, do you think you experienced the book differently than if you had noted that earlier? I mean, did that affect, do you think your enjoyment of the book or your reception of it? It didn't affect my enjoyment of it. Uh, I mean, I, I figured out pretty quickly that some of the characters were obviously being repeated in the stories. Uh, I, I didn't pick up on the, the overall narrative. Um, narrator connection, I think mostly because all these stories take place in different places, clearly over different periods of time without a lot of identifying information to actually help you figure out what the timeline is supposed to be. Um, But having finished the collection or novella, whatever you want to call it, and read a little bit more about it, um, it does change my perception of it retroactively um, because I believe a lot of people like to describe this writing as, um, as if somebody is in a bar telling a bunch of just random rambling drunk stories to Mm. you, which is why it has this disjointed. And that, that almost explicitly comes out in the, there's the story early in the book, two men, and then there's a story much later in which he notes, oh, I never told you about the second man. Right. I think As that's though he tr- is yeah. that kind of rambling figure. Right. He forgot in the middle yeah. and went on this crazy segue and it's like, oh, right, I have to actually finish. I think 
the second story is literally called The Other Man, where he can he continues the, mm-hmm. the first bit. So so right, that adds a little bit more context and, and and larger thematic understanding, I guess, of the stories. But I I mean, it did. I still thought it was great, even when I just yeah. had the impression that oh, they're just some people are just can like crossing over into different yeah portions. Yeah, there are people and locations. I mean, a lot of it. I mean, you say it takes place in different lo- different locations, but a lot of it is in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in Seattle a fair number of times. There's that bar, the Vine, that is a frequent meeting point for the narrator and characters that he surrounds himself with. Um, I I probably picked up on this stuff a little earlier because I took incredibly copious notes reading this because I was so concerned about. I was really worried I wasn't going to be able to remember how everything slots together. So I sort of overcompensated by uh, really um, possibly taking too many notes, but it did mean that I, that I was able to piece a lot of this stuff together. And I, I, it was, I think that added a lot to my read of the book because I think without that, there would, this is a, this is a fairly despairing novel in some ways. I mean, it's about a narrator and characters who have, in some ways, very little control over their lives because of, um, you know, because they are surrounded by addiction, by poverty, by things that decrease their agency. Um, But in another sense, and this is something that I found really interesting and powerful about the book, in another sense, they are very much in control of how they perceive the world in a way that um, allows the narrator and presumably these other characters to receive to perceive the world in almost occasionally sublime terms. It seems one of the things I got from this was that despite the aimlessness and death and destruction that is common in these stories, there's also an accord, see, the disconnection from uh, a sort of daily grind kind of life also permits the narrator to occasionally get flashes of something so big and overwhelming and almost transcendent about the world because he is so fully unmoored. He is just kind of floating through this life. And I, I feel like at times it leaves him open to almost extra sensory um, experiences, which weirdly happens almost literally in the first story where he seems to have a premonition about the car accident that, that he's going to be embroiled in. Um, but I, I found those moments of almost grace and sublimity to be incredibly um, just beautiful and moving and very powerful. Uh, and the fact that it is a continuous arc where at the end he seems to be on the road to some kind of real recovery also just means it's it's not a completely dire um they aren't just a bunch of dead end sort of portraits i don't know i thought this book was great i didn't know what i was getting into and at times it was difficult to read because it was so bleak um but also i just thought it was incredibly beautiful yeah i want to talk a little bit more about your your point of uh, the narrator or maybe the people who he's interacting with being able to connect with the sublime or, or have some further insight into humanity. I think 
something that this book deserves a lot of praise for is both treating all of these drug addict characters as very human and and you have a lot of empathy for for all of them even when they're doing terrible disgusting things you 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 still feel emotion for them uh but i don't think that it necessarily romanticizes this kind of lifestyle um i don't think so yeah the the implication i agree with is that sometimes this this disconnect allows the narrator to have these really poetic but sad glimpses at at something grander but i don't think the conclusion is therefore that society like everyone should be this way and i think that gets proven by the way that the first story in in this uh book ends um after the narrator car crash while hitchhiking right so after he he you're right he does kind of predict i guess that the car crash is going to happen or, or or maybe there's an implication that he helped cause it i can't i can't honestly can't remember because that's the first it, it felt more almost mystical to me than than sinister mm-hmm. he sort of willingly entered into a situation in which he somehow intuited that something disastrous was going to happen right which i guess you could i mean this might be over reading a bit but you could arguably take that as a metaphor for the kind of addiction being depicted in these stories generally mm-hmm. right no one doesn't know what what abusing drugs does but that doesn't mean people don't enter into it mm-hmm. with disastrous yeah. results right and so that that story ends I, I think years later where he's the the narrator is now in a detox clinic and he's having like again these insane visions uh ex- extra like paranormal almost f- seeming visions of reality and the way that that ends and i just want to read yeah. the last sentence um and you, you ridiculous people, you expect me to help you, which is like, okay, so here's this this character who's this recovering drug addict who, through his isolation from society, um, has come in contact with something, and and then he's, it's like, oh, you, the reader, or people in general, you expect me to then turn that into something meaningful that we can all learn from but really i'm just a drug addict who's trying to recover from this ab- abuse and it's a, it's crazy that you're expecting any kind of help from somebody in in my position which is ultimately why i feel like this book doesn't suggest like oh the way to truly like be in touch with the divine is to just abuse drugs yeah although i would I think that's true, but I would respond by saying, while that is not the conclusion of the book, neither is the book making any other conclusions either. And I think that is part of what makes it powerful. Mm-hmm. I think it is an it's an honest depiction and not one that has an agenda or a judgment to cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that makes it much more powerful than if it were taking either position that just either moralistic position or, mm-hmm. or sort of anti-moralistic or anything. It's, it's, it is very raw. It's almost like, um, it, you know, we read, uh, Raymond Carver a few months ago. Uh, and this feels like Raymond Carver meets William Burroughs or something who, who, you know, Burroughs 
also wrote about his own um, experiences as, I think, a heroin addict. Uh, his work was a lot more on the page, a lot more inscrutable, at least to me when I read Naked Lunch, for instance. It was a more difficult read than this is because it was so fragmented. This has that kind of carver terseness and just feels very observational and um, and unaffected, except when he breaks into these you know moments of grace. Yeah, um, yeah. It was unintentional to read Carver before reading. Yeah, but I'm this. glad. I'm glad we yes. did. I mean, I I think neither of us is is very well versed in short story writing, and I certainly even less so than you. So I'm I'm glad we had at least that grounding in this kind of American short story writing. Yeah. Sort of male American short story Ang- writing. Angry, angry male. <laughs> I don't. I wouldn't call this angry. Really, there are, there are some moments stories. Of, well, okay. There are there is anger depicted within it, but I would not describe the voice of the book as an angry one. Sure. Um, and I think that is part of what makes it beautiful, sort of heartbreaking and beautiful. I mean, there there's a lot of naked and undesirable emotion portrayed, right? A lot of these stories feature male characters, including the narrator, who feel constantly emasculated, um, who are, who get set off at any perceived threat to their, um, you know, manhood or to their integrity or to their toughness because they are, I, I assume in large part because their situation puts them so much on the wrong end of society's judgments to begin with that it makes them all the more desperate to maintain any shred of dignity that they can, which then often leads them to, you know, hypersensitivity to perceived slights to their dignity or manhood. And and that I found incredibly heartbreaking and very powerful. And again, almost just reported, you know, I mean, it was, it's, it is just put straightforward, you know, as you mentioned, there are occasionally times where the narrator directly addresses us and sort of says, well, what do you expect? But much of the time, it's just recollected, recollected, you know, without, without any angle. Um, and I, I just really appreciated that. I liked it a lot. Um, well, what uh, what were a couple of your favorite stories? I mean, you just you just mentioned one and read an excerpt. Were there any other particular tales you wanted to highlight? Um, I I weirdly really enjoyed the the short story called Emergency, which is the one where uh, the narrator and I think the character's name is Georgie. Yep, the orderly at the hospital. They're working in a hospital together, and a man comes into the hospital with a big hunting knife just in. <laughs> Sticking out of his eye. Yeah, uh, uh, and and then that one goes off on a, another. That's only one aspect of that short story, but I, I think I in, enjoyed those hospital scenes mm-hmm. the most uh, just just because it was, I, I found it to be funny, and I think you're you are supposed to find humor in in some of these, even in some of the the more terrible actions that are happening in in these stories. So yeah, I I did think it was just weirdly hilarious the the all of these like broken people in this hospital who are also supposed to somehow be taking care of other like actually physically broken 
people. That's the one where it ends with somebody asking Georgie, oh, what's, yeah. what's your job? And he says, I, I save, I save lives. lives. Yeah. It's like, God, this is like s- sad and funny and disgusting because it ha- that's the one where we find out the, where the narrator gets the nickname Fuckhead. So that's an important bit of yeah backstory where he ki- kills a bunch of baby accidentally actually crushes of, yeah baby oh, that was really hard there's just a, so much but it's but i just like oh this is hilarious because he's just this is it this is like yeah. broken broken people also having to take care of other equally but in different ways broken people mm-hmm. which is just life even though i even the guy with the knife sticking out of his face though if he feels like he fits into that same milieu, he has this. There are lots of almost, people with knives in them. That's why he's he, related. Well, sure, but he's he also has a, almost a easygoing attitude to what happened to him. I mean, he's not happy about it, but he's very few characters in this story react hysterically to scenes of violence and disaster uh, because they are. St- seemingly surrounded by it so much as a part of their day-to-day lives. It's so many of these people seem numbed to the things that have happened to them. Uh, and certainly including the narrator and the characters he uh, is surrounded by. I mean, there are characters who will just die either, you know, through murder or some other means. And people seem to just largely accept this as a matter of course and, and get on with their events. Um, but yeah, I, I like that story too. And that little bit at the end, the I save lives, I agree. I was going to call that out as well. Mm-hmm. I also liked the story that immediately follows emergency, which is called dirty wedding. And mm-hmm. that's the one that starts with the narrator going with his girlfriend so that she can have an, an abortion. And I think they're a good c- contrast because they're, they're both dealing with serious medical, issues and in in the first story it's it's presented as as comical it's like a farce and then in the second story it's it's so that one i did not find funny uh maybe for maybe because i'm a woman or because you're clearly meant to find the narrator to be more disgusting in in that story i just the way that he's reacting about his girlfriend and what she's going through and the way that he's treating her but i i like that contrast of okay here's here's the funny side of all of us being responsible for taking care of each other even though we can barely take care of ourselves and then here's the tragic upsetting side of that reality and and they both are true and it's nice that they one follows the other yeah yeah i i agree i the thing that occurs to me as well in terms of, you know, when you talk about everyone having to take care of each other, it is, you know, I think this is not in any way, I don't think, directly addressed by the book. But it is notable that these people get seemingly no, I mean, get very little attention or help from society at large. Um, that's kind of a just a distressing background element in this that the book doesn't really take on because it's about the direct first person experiences, but it's, 
I, I think it is it looms large because of how much time is spent with these characters in hospitals, either working at them or being treated within them and what have you. Um, but the, but it, their own predicaments feel like an afterthought to the larger society. Mm-hmm. Um, I one thing here's the thing actually that that occurred to me that I forgot to bring up to you earlier. So you uh, you lived in Seattle for a couple of years. Um, because of that, I spent you know, a bunch of time there, a city I had not known very well. And these days, I think the Pacific Northwest has very much, it has a reputation of being a very hip place. It is, you know, uh, there are now in Seattle, massive tech companies like Amazon reside there, Microsoft nearby. Uh, this book was published in 1992. And the version of the Pacific Pacific Northwest depicted in this novel feels one, either it feels very different to the the Pacific Northwest, you know, Seattle, Portland, places like that, uh, uh, very hip current places, or alternatively, I don't know, perhaps the version depicted in this novel still exists and is just largely invisible to the version of those cities that present themselves these days. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, and I don't know that I do either, but I... but. Reading a book set 25 years ago, or actually published, I don't know when it was set, but published 25 years ago in these areas where we've spent a fair amount of time, it felt like a very, very big shift to mm-hmm. me. Well, the this having not actually lived in Seattle in the early sure. 90s, uh, all conjecture, but um, my understanding is that this kind of was what these areas were like because they... Pre-tech companies moving in, there was this just vacuum created by loss of job opportunities Mm. in uh, the Pacific Northwest cities. I think um, this this might have happened earlier than in in the 90s, but famously a bunch of, you know, Boeing is is another big company that's up in Seattle. And uh, in the 70s or the 80s, they had to lay off a, a lot of people in Seattle, and there was like a, a f- billboard or something um, put up right outside of Seattle that said like the last one out, make sure to, to turn off the lights, and implying that just like yeah. it was kind of a, a dead city yeah. for a while. And this is also coinciding with um, the rise of like grunge music coming mm-hmm. out of that area, which feels very much like a part of the aesthetic of all of these stories that are set in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, so as from everything that I understand about this place, it definitely tracks with what, how things used to be. And, and, and now today, um, at least in my experience of having lived there, very different just because there oh, yeah. is money being injected back into those places. Yeah, to- no, totally. I mean, here's here's a quote that struck me because of the specific references to places, including bars on First Avenue, which, you know, if you spent time in Seattle these days, I would not recognize the version of it depicted in this quote. Uh, this is in the story uh, Happy Hour, and it reads, The day was ending in a fiery and glorious way. The ships on the sound looked like paper silhouettes being sucked up into the sun. The cigarette smoke looked unearthly. The sun lowered itself through the roof of clouds, ignited the sea, and filled the big picture window with molten light so that we did our dueling and dreaming in a brilliant fog. People entering the bars on First Avenue gave up their bodies. Then only the demons inhabiting us could be seen. 
And I, I love that one because of that picture it paints of that area. And also just because it is such an incredibly beautiful, um, it's just beautiful writing. It's just a pleasure to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and, as, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, just getting those glimpses of, of beauty in a book that is so much about um, difficulty and tragedy is it goes along. It, they punch really hard as a result. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And that's definitely aided by the medium of short story writing as well. In what way? I I was thinking about this just before we started to record, but in, in my limited, granted, experience with short stories, I find that what I have read often has a very melancholy mm. uh, atmosphere. So we've read The Carver. I've read a lot of Monroe, who mm-hmm. we I've also- read a fair amount of Monroe, yeah. Um, George Packer, uh, all these f- very famous short story writers that who who definitely have to varying degrees humor and, and levity in their writing but also do have a, a lot of sadness that that infuses uh the writing and i was trying to think if that's just if if it's selection bias on on my part and i'm just <laughs> right. I'm happening to read sh- short story writers who are similar or if there's something about the this this mode of writing that in- encourages that kind of ultimate just like s- sad um not nihilistic but just me- melancholy con- yeah. conclusion or 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 attitude about existence and I-, I wonder if it has something to do with you have a very very limited number of pages to express an entirely fully formed thought and which just maybe tracks with our lives where you have a very limited mm. amount of time to express f- a fully formed thought. And ultimately you're going to fail at, at doing that. And, and and maybe that's just something like n- knowing that you're writing a short story and therefore don't have the leisure of, three, 400, 500 pages to like really go in, in depth. Mm-hmm. All the ups and downs and everything. Right. Um, just makes everything trend towards something a little bit sadder or maybe the kind of writers who are more attracted to short stories are just sadder in in general. I don't know. I would be curious to, to see if anyone has, I'm sure people have written extensively on yeah. that that kind of, um, c- connection, but just just going back and kind of going through the mental roster of short stories that I've read, they all they all have the same kind of feeling where you you just get it's like a gut punch at the end of every story. Um, and and sometimes, I mean, I would say in, in these stories, sometimes the gut punch is the positive part, but it, you know, it, it's sort of the moment of serenity, but because it punctuates so much dismalness it almost serves as an underline to the bleakness that has mm-hmm. preceded it. You know, so even if it ends on a higher note, sometimes that really just punches up the melancholy. But I, th- I think you're right about in, I mean, certainly in my experience as well. And, and obviously I, I'm not a, enough of a student of short stories to know if that holds universally, but I, I do think you're, you I do think you identify something pretty common in short story writing. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, back to even like Ray Bradbury short stories, you know, a science fiction writer 
those my memory of reading those is that they also even those have more of a melancholy air than for instance a full Bradbury novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there must just be something about that form mm-hmm. that that draws. It's, you have the the least amount of space to make the most like emotional punch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, to if we can continue a little bit talking about short stories. The other thing that I was thinking a lot of while reading this book is um, other stories of addiction um, and and. Primarily, I was thinking, oh, have I ever read or heard about stories written by women that are also about addiction, mm-hmm. which I, I kind of struggled, honestly, to, to think of uh, similar uh, female authors. But then I, I realized that um, uh, Lucia Berlin, uh, who is a writer from the, the few decades previous, she she passed has you know, passed away at this point, but she's having uh, a little renaissance yeah, true, yeah. Um, right now where her, her short story collection manual for cleaning women was published, I think a year or two ago. And I, I read that and there, there are definitely a lot of parallels um, in part because Berlin herself, uh, I believe struggled with alcoholism um, for a large part of her life. So her, she like in her short stories writes about what, that was like and it's the same kind of vibe as all of the 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 people who have various drug addictions in in the jesus's son have um just told through uh, a female perspective instead and it, and it has the same kind of just like um raw upsetting honesty that i i felt this way when i was reading dennis johnson where you finish a story and it's like they could it could only be what like 10 pages some of them they're they're all really really short but you finish reading it and you just have to like stop and 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 not continue because you've been presented with with something so un unfiltered and i felt the same way about berlin the difference being that her short story collection is like 400 pages Mm -hmm. versus this dennis johnson which is very brief which makes it a little bit easier i think it's only 130 pages yep um, exactly but i wanted i wanted to just briefly i don't have a lot more to say about the the similarities just that uh, this is this is clearly a topic that interests yeah people you know what this com- having this conversation makes me sort of note that short story writers seem to Again, this is get ready for an uninformed opinion, but I'm gonna go on a limb and say it might be lar- some somewhat true that short story writers tend to write directly from life more than novelists. Who, in order to create, you know, if you're a novelist, obviously all writers write from life. You can only write to the extent that you have some kind of experience that informs you. Nonetheless, I think to populate 300, 400, 500 pages. Um, a lot of what you're writing is is composite and is is um, stitched together from from many disparate observations and experiences. Short story writers who are encapsulating very specific experiences and moments seem to very often write directly from life, even if obviously many things are changed, many things are invented. And I would maybe, except for Bradbury, I would probably all of the writers we've just mentioned, short story writers, I would probably suspect that about them or know from reporting. Um, and it sort of strikes me that people more likely to have interesting direct 
life experiences worth writing about are probably people who have had more difficult things happen to them because the someone who has a fairly placid and enjoyable life is that is just going to be less interesting to write about, you know, quite honestly. In a novel, you can include the full range of ups and downs and everything else. But if you have the kind of life that gives you the material to write short, highly charged, dense pieces of direct experience, it's probably more likely than not that the reason you have those experiences is because you, you've experienced adversity that is you know, mm-hmm. going to Above come pop off the page. Yeah. 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 I think that's, I think you're, you've really captured something that I think is probably true for this kind of writing. Well, I guess I didn't, uh, I didn't ever share any of my st- direct story highlights. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I did mention happy hour, um, which was, uh, the story from which I read that quote. Uh, but there was another one that I wanted to mention, um, which was called work. And mm-hmm. work opens with the narrator um, in a holiday inn for a few days with his girlfriend, uh, but they have a fight and he leaves, meets up with his friend Wayne, and they go to this house that Wayne claims was is it, it's still his house, un- unclear if that's true or if it used to be or what, but they see a woman kind of fly by on, I, I don't even know what the sport is called, but she's sort of flying... Okay hang glider yeah like a hang glider yeah or but it's she's tethered to a boat though Mm -hmm. yeah or paraglider that's a thing paraglider i guess is what it is yeah and um it's it's one of those weird almost mystical experiences they see this woman sort of flying by and then uh they leave and she's naked is the other thing and, and she's naked yeah uh they drive to a farmhouse and they meet wayne's wife and the narrator believes this woman to be the same woman they saw out on the lake and we we as the audience don't really have any way to prove or disprove that claim it seems unlikely that it's the same person but that is the narrator's uh belief and it may well be true and he says as nearly as i could tell i'd wandered in some sort of dream that wayne was having about his wife and his house but i didn't say anything more about it and that that interpretation of that experience is so profoundly original and interesting that like pithy little summary of what's going on that he exists in somebody else's sort of fantasy or dream about the events that they're experiencing is i just thought was incredible that really knocked me back for a moment um and i i just i loved that story and that was also one uh in which he he goes to the they go to the vine and they drink and i i i liked that I like the device of the vine as a very rare anchor point in this book, you know, one of very few sort of magnetic places that actually provides some kind of stability or solidity. Um, And also in that story is another moment of this kind of beautiful observation where he discusses uh, being 18 in bed with his first wife and it starts hailing. And the experience of hail is this like, overwhelming incredible sensory experience he says a clattering sound was tearing up my head as i staggered upright and opened the door on a vision i will never see again where are my women now with their sweet wet words and ways and the miraculous balls of hail popping on a green translucence in the yards we put on our clothes she and i and walked out into the town flooded ankle deep with white buoyant stones birth should have been like that and again it's just like an access to a 
sort of set of mental connections that is so unusual and unexpected and and beautiful that I just I just thought it was incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's like poetry kind of. It, it's absolutely poetry, and I think it's of a kind that I don't think you can often get away with in a novel mm-hmm. unless you're like superhuman. But it, I, I often find that really florid observation like that in a novel is like distracting or kind of um, showy. Mm-hmm. But in a, in a, in stories like these, because so much of the point of it is the narrator's perception of the world and um, kind of the state he's in and and um, what it means to his whole like existence, I, I just feel mm-hmm. like it is totally appropriate. And not in any way like pretentious or mm-hmm. showy. It's right. Really, it's just it's like attempting to set a certain kind of tone. Yeah, but be- yeah, exactly. And and it can get away with it because it doesn't have to sustain that for three hundred pages. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um. Well, I don't. I didn't have any other specific kind of points or. I have a question that I just oh, yeah. thought of. Go for it. What does Jesus's son mean? Oh, it's a reference to a um, a Velvet Underground song. Oh. Yeah. Whoops. Well, that was really easy. What What is the significance of the velvet um, on it? It's from the song Cocaine. Mm. You, you'd know it if you heard it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I, I don't know. Actually, I, I I should have looked this up before, but I, I off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you what the specific meaning is mm-hmm. in, but, in the lyrics. Yeah. Did you just know that, or did you? Yeah, I used to be. I used to be really into the velvet underground. I mean. Mm. Not that I'm not now, but I, mm-hmm. you know, more than I more than I am now. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought that was going to be a whole potential like what does this mean but it turns out it was very obvious yeah let me i should confirm that what i just said is true (laughs) i don't want to put this out no no it's okay well i was a sort of an idiot the song was uh heroin not cocaine Mm. which i that was just a complete brain fart on Mm -hmm. my part but yeah guess though yeah it's it's from the song heroin by the velvet underground so i was i was sort of close and the line that is directly referenced is, and I feel just like Jesus' son. Um, and I, I mean, I think the, that's, I mean, that song, I think does also get across some of the like metaphysical um, subjective experience of drug use that I think is hinted at in this novel. So, I, I mean, I think it, I think it is, it's an appropriate reference, um, but I'm not prepared to go into it at great length. But that's where it comes from. Perfect. So All right. Know. Yeah. That's yeah. actually very interesting. So yeah. cool. All right. Well, I guess that wraps it up. It was sort of a compact discussion for a very compact book. Yep. So that works. We will be back in September with NW by Zadie Smith, uh, which is a book that actually both of us have read before, which is unusual for the book club. Um, but it's been a few years for me and even longer for you, I assume. Yep. And uh, this is a book that we both really liked and thought would be good to uh, get out there. Mm-hmm. In fact, you sent me this book years ago yep. before we even started going out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that'll be kind of a fun thing to talk about together. If you have any email you would like to send us about the book we're reading, if you have anything to say about N.W. by Zadie Smith, or for that matter, Jesus' is Son by Dennis Johnson. Or anything that we've read. Or anything. Um we read it all, even if we don't read it all on the podcast, but we, sh- we would be more than happy to read something on the podcast if it's timely. Um, you can email to books at idlethumbs.net. Our website is idlebookclub.com, and from there you can subscribe to the show. You can find links to uh, 
the forums for each episode, the forum post where we discuss each book with the incredibly welcoming and insightful uh, Idle Thumbs community. That is a great thing to do if you have things to say about the book, especially before we get to our episode on it. Um, all that can be found at idlebookclub.com. So that's that's that. Uh, N.W. by Zadie Smith for September. You have some extra time to read it. And thank you for joining us on the Idle Book Club. I am Chris Remo. I'm Sarah Arkadale. Bye. <laughs>